Good evening. Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church for our Bible study in Job. We are in Job, finishing Job 40. Tonight, we are going to spend some time with the uh, behemoth, uh, depending on how you uh, pronounce the Hebrew word. All right. We always take a few seconds as we begin our uh, our Bible class. A few seconds for spiritual preparation. And our spiritual preparation, of course, is confession of sins and uh, focusing on the text of Scripture, what's being presented. Uh, and that's very important. Trust in the Lord in all your hearts. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Commit your, commit your life, commit yourself to God. Lean not unto Him, and He will bring it to pass. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. There we go. Uh, I also really enjoy Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And the the idea there is not necessarily where you're going, but it's whatever you're doing, whatever is happening in your life. God is with you. And we have had and are having quite a few events in the lives of uh, many of our members. Uh, I think one of the uh, the first uh, items for which we have been praying is the surgery for little Asher. So we've been certainly praying for Asher, but for the entire family, uh, Austin and Vanessa, and also little uh, Axel, from what I understand, uh, he uh, missed his family while they were uh, in the hospital with Asher, and so he needs prayer as well. Uh, also praying for a very good friend down in Texas, uh, Kay Conway. I know we've been praying for her. She had an operation, and she's recovering now. Uh, another uh, member of the church uh Debbie Graham, we're praying for her, uh, for her recovery uh, after her surgery. And we're also um, thinking of Bill Sen, who will have an operation on his uh, hand tomorrow. So we're staying busy, or at least we should be busy. Uh, we might say on our knees, but we need not... Uh, think that we have to be on our knees to pray. We can pray uh, even while we're in the car, coming to and fro. Just you may want to keep your eyes open uh, if you're doing that. All right. Uh, let's take a few seconds closing our eyes and bowing our heads. And after a few seconds, I will open us in prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for those that uh, I just mentioned. We pray for the Druger family, particular, particularly Asher, as he is recovering from surgery. Uh, that little fellow has gone through many surgeries since birth, and the uh, remarkable wisdom and skill of the doctors uh, has been uh, beyond uh, remarkable. Uh, and we pray, Father, that he will continue to recover and uh, his digestive system will uh, also develop, that it will sense the natural functions that need to occur so that he will live uh, a normal life as he matures. Father, we continue to pray for Kay Conway as she recovers from her surgery on her left shoulder. We also pray for Debbie Graham as she is recovering from surgery that she has uh, has had. Uh, we also pray now for Bill Sin as he will be going to uh, the surgeon tomorrow for uh, surgery on his hand. And we pray, Father, that that will be uh, very successful, that it will uh, achieve the, the goal that's desired there, and he'll be able to use his hand uh, much more effectively. We're also, Father, praying for our nation as we approach the the election that's uh, that will occur on November the third. We pray that there will be an understanding of the responsibilities for voting. We often hear that there are many believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who do not take on the responsibility of voting for our leadership. And it's important for us to participate. We've been told that the Jews, when they were even in exile in Babylon, they were told to participate in the the functions that were occurring around them. And so we understand the importance of voting. And we pray that uh, those who do vote will remember that this nation was established by you, Father, and uh, on biblical principles, so much so that we have many responsibilities that need to be executed by those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are five that I very often mention. There may very well be others, but certainly the five that I, I've uh, mentioned are, first of all, that we are a custodian for the Word of God. We have, not only was the nation established on biblical principles, but those who came to this nation brought their Bibles. And the first, one of the first acts of our Congress was to print Bibles, and they were to be used in the education, uh, the uh, education system here in the United States. And it's important for us to remember that as we are custodians of the Word of God, we should study it, study it, and uh, 
be devoted uh, to the principles we find there. We are also a haven for Jews. And the United States has been probably one of the greatest nations throughout human history in uh, accepting and welcoming uh, Jews, uh, your people, Father. We also know that we are a basis for uh, missionary uh, outreach, and we're thankful that we have many, many missionaries that are traveling to Asia, to South America, to Europe, to uh, the Middle East, to Africa, uh, all of these locations. And it's very important for us to remember to pray for our missionaries and to support them so that they can take the gospel and the word of God to other nations. We also, Father, are to be uh, uh, friends to the nation of Israel. It's through our friendship with Israel that we receive great blessings. And the United States has blessed, been blessed because of our relationship with Israel. Uh, we also, Father, know that the nation uh, has been given a very strong position in the world. And one of those uh, one of the reasons for that is so that we can restrain evil. So uh, our missionaries will have the opportunity to more freely uh, execute their ministries. And so, Father, we do pray for our nation. We pray for our president, pray for his safety, his health, and also his wisdom as uh, he leads this nation. We pray that um, he will understand his responsibilities to this Christian nation and lead it from that standpoint. Father, we're thankful for the, the passage that we'll be studying tonight. We know that it can be uh, difficult for some, confounding to many scholars, many theologians as they study the Word of God. We pray that we'll have the correct uh, perspective on uh, this passage in Job 40. And as we study it, that we'll um, also understand the reason that uh, it was written, uh, the reason that God the Holy Spirit has preserved it. And uh, one of those reasons is for us to understand, Father, who you are and what you have done for this uh, universe, this uh, solar system, and the earth where we find ourselves. And, Father, it's remarkable that you are not only the creator of this universe, but you care for all of the details that are involved in the daily, moment-by-moment functioning of this, uh, of this earth. So we ask, Father, for your provision. Help us to focus, concentrate, and we ask that God the Holy Spirit would lead us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Tonight, we are in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, we are studying God's two speeches. His speeches began in chapter 38 and will conclude in chapter 42, we'll see uh, Job 
replying to God's speeches. As a matter of fact, we've seen one, and we'll see his second one in in chapter 41. We've seen God's first speech, Job 38, and that probably is more accurately should be recorded as 39, 38 and 39. Uh, Job's first response is in the early part of chapter 40. Uh, We saw God's closing rebuke and challenge uh, to Job. I think I saw this last time. God's closing rebuke and challenge to Job 41 and 2, verses 1 and 2. We saw Job's first reply to God, which was chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. And then we begin God's, we began God's second speech in chapter 40, verse 6, and it will continue to uh, chapter, the, the end of chapter 41, verse 34. We saw God's challenge and rebuke there to Job. Uh, verses 6 through 14, God's questioning now about two animals. And that's where we find ourselves this uh, today in verses in chapter 40 and uh, verses 15. What we're going to see here is we're in chapter 40, verses 15 to chapter 41 through 34. Today, we are going to be focused on the verses 15 through 24. As we study this, we're going to see the behemoth. And this, as I uh, have mentioned, is uh, can be a challenging passage, uh, verses 15 through 24, as we uh, try to identify and understand uh, what God, the Holy Spirit, is telling us. As a matter of fact, let us simply begin by reading the the entire passage, beginning in verse 15, going to uh, reading to verse 24. Verse 15 in Job chapter 40 says, Look, another way to translate this is, Behold! Um, and I think behold is a better word here because it has the tendency to call our attention more effectively. Behold now at the behemoth which I made alongside you. He eats grass like an ox. Verse 16. Another another uh, word here, behold now. So the emphasis in verses 16, 15 and 16 is important. Behold now, his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze his ribs like bars of iron. He, this is the behemoth, he is the first of the ways of God. Only he, and this is not to the 
reference to the behemoth, but to he, God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Verse 20. And by the way, verse 19 is uh, one of the more difficult verses to understand here. What is God doing there? Verse 20. Surely the mountains yield food for him and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth. Verse 24, though he takes it in his eyes, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. Now, as I've mentioned in the past, poetry uses a lot of figures of speech and um, narrative does as well, but particularly in poetry. And so as we read this, um, there are some places that we have to understand are literal, but many of these uh, refer to uh, are uh, referred to figurative language. All right. Uh, let me begin here in God's questioning about two animals. And you'll notice here, I am just have uh, point A, uh, the behemoth, but next week we'll get to uh, the Leviathan, which takes us through the end of, of all, actually, the entire chapter 41. But we are God questioning about two animals and we will study one of them this evening. Verses, uh, chapter 40, verses 15 through 24. Uh, God's first speech displayed a panorama of nature, including 12 animals. We saw those 12 animals. But in his second speech, which we, we, which we have begun, his lens, he zooms in on two, only two animals. God thereby presents Job with his limited ability and with God's majestic power. There is this contrast, and we've seen this contrast through uh, the entirety of God's presentation, his dialogue with Job. There's a contrast here between who God is, what God has done, and Job, and Job's uh, adversity, his uh, response to the adversity. And as we begin... In verses 15-24, we encounter a word in verse 15 that confounds many scholars. Verse 15 says, Now, uh, behold now at the behemoth which I made along with you. Uh, there are hints, I believe, in this 
first, the first part of this verse, uh, which we call in Hebrew the colon, the first colon, uh, that helps us to understand uh, what this behemoth is. The word in our English text is behemoth. And the Hebrew word is found in several passages in the Old Testament. It's not only found here. But the problem is, is that we really don't know the identity of this word behemoth in Job. Let me digress for a minute. You'll remember that I've remarked um, actually, many times, I think you'll remember that, I've remarked that when you encounter a word in a foreign language, another language, which you don't know how to translate, what do you do? Well, you transliterate it. Transliteration means that you take the sounds of the word in the foreign language and you pronounce that word or you read it in the language that you're translating. Now, uh, honestly, if we were to uh, ask whether that is a failing in translation, I would say no. It's actually proper. It's not an improper practice. And why? Well, if you don't know the meaning of the word, then what can you do? You, you need that to say something. Hopefully, the reader is interested enough in the passage or the section to do some contextual research. And hopefully, the parallel passages or what we often call cross-references help in isolating the an accurate translation. So when you come to a word, you don't know the, uh, the translation, you generally will need to transliterate it. And that's what we have with behemoth. If you were to see the, the word in Hebrew, of course you wouldn't recognize it because it's Hebrew letters, but you would simply pronounce it behemoth. Behemoth is actually the word. An example in New Testament Greek would be baptism. I think we've uh, discussed this many times, that the word baptism is not being translated in the New Testament. It is transliterated. Now, we do know what baptism means, but theologians disagree on it theologically. Some believe that it can easily mean just sprinkle, maybe dip, maybe immerse, some splash, etc. However, they understand the, uh, the word to mean. What we try to do is understand the word, first of all, in context. Uh, and if we can understand it in context, then there's no reason, there's no reason to simply transliterate it. We can give the, um, the actual meaning of the word. But, um, many 
theologians decide not to do that because they would like to maybe uh, cover the uh, various possible translations. Now, baptism uh, may not be the, the best example, but it's certainly an example, and we've used it many times. In the Old Testament, the meaning of the Hebrew word sheol, and that's the Hebrew word, it actually is pronounced sheol, but what does sheol mean? Um, for some, there it's very difficult, uh, but for others, they seem to have a fairly good grip on this word. Um, so instead of translating the word, because it means grave or pit, or possibly it means paradise or torments, uh, instead of translating it that way, they'll translate it Sheol. Now, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you will see uh, the word Sheol. And other times you'll see the word pit or grave. Uh, the sad part about that is, and the confusing part, is that there are words for grave and there are words for pit that are not Sheol. So when you encounter the word uh, grave or pit, uh, you might wonder, is this uh, the Hebrew word Sheol? It happens to me all the time. And I have to go to the text to see what it, uh, whether it is Sheol or another word for grave. Um, of course, if I say Sheol, few people really know the actual meaning. So again, it might be better to translate it pit or grave um, and then describe what it is. Let's turn to Job 17.16. Let's go back to Job 17. This is a great illustration. Now, you might find this a little bit academic, but every now and then we have to be academic. Verse 1 of chapter 17 says, My spirit, and this is Job. Job is describing his, uh, his dispirited situation. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Now, the word grave here is not the word sheol. So this is very well translated as grave. And he's saying the grave is ready for me. Uh, is the grave ready for him? I'd like to stop and say uh, the grave is not ready for us until God is ready to send us to the grave. Job is saying that he's ready for the, for the grave. Well, he's not. And we learn that he's going to live a long time uh, subsequent to this. Uh, verse 2 says, Are not mockers with me, meaning his friends, and does not my eyes, do not my eyes dwell on their provocation? Now, we could continue to, to, to read this, but he's describing his um, anguish through this. And as he finishes, let's jump over to verse 10. But please come back again, all of you 
for I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. And what he may be saying here is my days are fading. My purposes, my plans are broken off. They've been destroyed. They're shadowed, uh, shattered. Even the thoughts, the desires of my heart. Verse 12, they change the night into day. And I think the night here is the gloom of his life at this point. Verse 12, uh, they change the, the night, the gloom into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. And so here he's, he's trying to describe those who would encourage him so that they're bringing him from a, a state of gloom to one of lightness. Uh, verse 13, if I wait for the grave, now here's the word grave. We saw it translated grave in verse 1, chapter 17. But this word happens to be Sheol. And it's interesting because it probably just means grave. And so it's properly translated. But there's two different words here. If I wait for the grave, Sheol is my house. If I make my bed in the darkness, in the gloom, if I say to corruption, to decay, you are my father, meaning he's getting ready to die and he is going to decay. And to the worm, you are my mother and my sister. Where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Who can find it? Who knows it? Verse 16, will they, will hope, go down to the gates of Sheol? Uh, Shall we have rest together in the dust? And so here we have this word Sheol. And while this may seem, again, somewhat um, unimportant, we have words that are used that are simply, that are not translated, but are uh, transliterated. If you understand the context, you realize that Job here is speaking about the grave. He uses uh, the word grave once, and then twice he uses the word sheol. One of them is translated grave. The other one is translated sheol, but it means grave. All right, let's go back to Job 40.15. It is important to have correct theology or your translation or description, of course, is going to be flawed. And that's what happens so many times with transliterated words. Therefore, scholars differ in their views as to who these creatures are. Uh, The behemoth and Leviathan. We'll study Leviathan next week. Against the view that the behemoth and Leviathan are mythological are some facts. Now, there are probably three different ways that uh, behemoth is understood. First of all, it could have been an early earthly creature, one that is still alive and uh, is, uh, is seen today. It could be a mythological creature 
In other words, it could be a, a, a creature that was understood maybe as it came from the Canaanite uh, mythology or uh, possibly uh, some other culture. Uh, also, it could be an earthly creature, but one that has already uh, become extinct. And I believe that's what we have here. But let me address the mythological creature uh, that so many theologians accept. All right. Behemoth. Job. Chapter 40, verse 15. Real or mythological? First of all, God told Job to look at the behemoth. And that's what he says in verse 15. Now look, behold, now uh, understand behemoth is what we're saying. Behold, uh, observe it, which I made along with you. So first of all, we see that God told Job to look at behemoth. Job couldn't look, couldn't see a mythological creature. Secondly, God said that he made behemoth as he made Job. That's what we have here in verse 15. Now look at behemoth, which I made along with you. And therefore what this is telling us, and I believe that this is accurate, that God is saying that at the same time I created mankind, or maybe we would say during the creation week, I also, I made behemoth and I made you. That's what we have here in point two. God said that he made, he created the behemoth as he made Job, verse 15. Third, the detailed description of uh, behemoth befits real, not mythology. So the detailed descriptions of both animals, their anatomies, befit real, not mythological beasts. So better spelled there, uh, befits real, not mythological than animals or beasts. Four, animals in myths were based on real creatures, were, um, but exaggerated. So very often uh, animals, uh, as they were described mythologically, were somehow, they had to have a base for them. And very often they were based on real creatures but they they uh, were given exaggerated features. Five. Point four, what I'll try to explain, is that um, God is uh, describing certain features of these animals that Job would understand. And... And therefore, um, he would not 
uh, he would not have used mythological beasts, creatures. He would have used uh, something that he didn't need to exaggerate. Uh, he's trying to to uh, present to Job uh, an understanding of who he was and what he had done, what he had created. Uh, mythology uh, is not something that God would need to uh, display a, a lot of power and ability to create. Um, human beings can come up with mythology. Point five. Point five, the 12 animals in verses, thir- in chapters 38 and 39 were real, which would therefore cause one to expect that these two animals should also be real. Why change to uh, mythology? Why would God switch from meal, from real to mythological examples? And I think that's a, a very legitimate question to ask here. Six, though sometimes elsewhere in Scripture, the uh, these animals are are used and they're very easy to understand. Here in Job, it seems to be a little more difficult or maybe a lot more difficult. Uh, let's take Job 3.8. So in other passages, behemoth can be understood as being real. Let's go to Job 3, verse 8. Here we have the word Leviathan. Not behemoth. We'll go to another passage that has behemoth. But this is uh, one of these two beasts that we're going to be studying. Verse 8 in chapter 3. May, may those... Let's go back up to verse 7. Oh, oh may... Uh, I almost have to start David's birth. Uh, let's go back up to verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, A male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May it be uh, dismal, is another way of, of understanding that. May it be overcast or dreary. May God above not seek it. In other words, uh, reject it. May he not reject it. Nor the light shine upon it. Uh, may darkness, uh, gloomness, and the shadow of death claim it. Uh, Job, as we've studied here, was saying, Oh, that I had never been born. Uh, may a cloud settle on it. May the darkness of the day, the gloominess of the day, terrify it. Verse 6, as for that night, may darkness seize it. Sadness might be another word of understanding this. Seize it, the, the day of his birth. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of months. Oh, that may the night be barren. Uh, may no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day. Those 
who are ready to arouse Leviathan. And I think Leviathan here, uh, those who curse it, meaning his day of birth, those who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse uh, Leviathan, this is a description of a dangerous situation. Uh, It's not necessarily uh, a sea monster. We'll see if that's what we have here. But it could, he could arouse uh, Leviathan so that it is a very dangerous situation. And that's the curse that we have. Now, let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27. I want to use Leviathan here because that'll help us next week. Isaiah 27 says, verse 1, In that day the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Now, there are those who would take this as um, a figurative speech or possibly a um, something other than uh, a sea serpent uh, or a sea monster. Maybe it's another way of saying this. But this actually, this Leviathan is a sea monster, but this sea monster is represented by Satan. Notice that this is the end of time. Isaiah 27 is a description of the end of the tribulation. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Uh, Satan is called the serpent. Um, and Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In other words, God is going to defeat Satan. But Leviathan here, even though it represents Satan, uh, is represented by uh, the uh, sea monster. All right. Back to Job. Point seven. The plural of uh, behemoth is translated beasts of the field. We're not going to go to Job 1.20. But the plural of behemoth, which is actually this word, uh, Behemoth, behime, uh, is translated singularly, but behemoth is translated beast. It's a plural understanding because the description of the behemoth in our passage does not match any animals today. Many scholars take one part of the description and use it to identify another animal. They would call the behemoth a particular animal that Job could have seen that we could possibly see today. Some believe this animal is an elephant, others a crocodile, and yet others a hippopotamus. And of course, the list can go on. Uh, answers in Genesis and uh, IRC uh, both believe that the description is that of dinosaur, dinosaurs. 
which are now extinct. I think it's important for us to remember that Job is possibly the earliest book of the Bible, and it's possibly, and it's possible that Job easily recognized the animals, but we don't because the animals are now extinct. And uh, what I'd like to do, I'm going to move through this passage that we've read read through it once. Let me move through it rather quickly because I'd like to read a an article that was written by a, a scholar from Answers in Genesis. Uh, there are others that we can find in ICR's Institute. Yeah, I can't remember that first. Institute of Creation Research. All right. Uh, let me read, begin in verse 15 again. Verse 15. Behold now at the behemoth. Look at the behemoth. Um, and a behemoth here is either a wild animal, a beast, or it actually could be translated cattle, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. So this verse tells us that the behemoth was created at the same time that mankind, that man was created. And this probably means during the week of creation. It doesn't, I don't think it necessarily has to be on the same day, day six, although the word behemoth is used in uh, Genesis 1.24 and it's, just, and it's translated cattle. This verse is important because it tells us that if this is a description of a dinosaur, then they were created during the six days of creation, very likely on the fifth or the sixth day. Of course, that is precisely what many uh, liberal theologians do not believe. They don't accept a young earth, but accept but accept the evolutionary process. They believe dinosaurs died millions of years. As a matter of fact, somewhere over 60 million years prior to the first early human, whom they would probably call Heidelberg Man. Uh, and it was before he uh, crawled out of the swamp. But they're wrong. God created dinosaurs on either the fifth or the sixth day of creation. And they still existed when Noah put them on the ark. So, let's see, in verses 15, and now let's move on to verse 16. Now, behold, his strength is in his hips, and his power is in his stomach muscles. Uh, This is not a crocodile. Uh, It might, it could possibly... Uh, describe an elephant or a hippo, but as far as we know, no hippos existed in Palestine. Verse 17, he moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. Uh, this description really does not fit an elephant or a hippo or even a rhino because this tail is like a cedar. Uh, However, it does fit a dinosaur. 
uh, various types of dinosaurs had very uh, powerful tails. As a matter of fact, they used them as defense. Verse 18, his bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. So the strength of the behemoth's bones and ribs are extreme as God describes them. God creates him. He knows how strong those bones were. 19, he, behemoth, is the first of the ways And I think the word ways here, Derek, does mean path or ways. But in poetry, I believe we could also translate this works. So he is the first of the works of God, meaning that he was one of the early animals that was created. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Um, This verse speaks of God's creation of a magnificent creature in the first colon, the first line. The second colon means that the creature is so powerful that only God could slay him. Use of the word sword. Verse 20, surely the mountains yield food for him and all the beasts of the field play there. Uh, Mountains in uh, the area of Palestine were either known as uh, hill country or um, uh, in areas where um, there would, they would be able to find grazing. Animals would find grazing. Um, verse 21, he lies under the lotus tree in a covert or a hiding place, a shelter of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The widows, uh, willows, by the brook surround him. Verse 23, indeed, or if, and if is probably a better translation here, if the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the, the Jordan gushes into his mouth. So we know that the location uh, of this animal is in the Jordan. It's along the Jordan River. Um, and another way of translating this uh, verse, as a matter of fact, I did a little uh, comparison with some of the English versions. This was the NIV. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure. Though the Jordan should surge around his mouth. Now, it is uh, the word for mouth, but I think that this tells us that the animal here is comfortable in the water. And there are many uh, dinosaurs that uh, lived in and around water. As a matter of fact, uh, they could get out into deep water for security. Uh, verse 24, though he takes takes it in his eyes, and this would be a reference to water, or one pierces his nose with a snare. I think the figurative language here probably uses eyes to mean that the uh, the animal, the uh, behemoth, is vigilant. So it's out in the water and it's watching. It's very alert. The second line indicates that uh, behemoth 
cannot be captured by placing hooks or snares in its nose. So can anyone capture uh, this animal when he is alert, when he's watching with barbs or snares or hooks? Can anyone pierce his nose? So this is the description that we have of this animal. Um, and I believe that it was certainly created by God. It's not a mythological um, creation, uh, but uh, it's not a hippopotamus, I don't believe. I don't believe that it's an elephant. I don't believe that it's a rhino. I don't believe that it's a crocodile. Now, if there are some who believe that, that's fine. Uh, but for me, I'm going to follow one of these scholars from Answers in Genesis, and his name is Simon Turpin. He wrote this in March 17, 2020. So this is fairly recent. He says in his uh, text, his article, Scholars and the Mystery of Behemoth. The book of Job raises many questions, but one that baffles many scholars is the identity of the the mysterious creature known as Behemoth. After showing Job the wonders of his creation in chapters 38-39, God speaks to him a second time and continues to challenge him by telling him to exercise justice in the world. In other words, uh, God is just and Job needs to understand what that justice is. God is dealing with the issue of justice since Job has called into question God's justice and has frequently asked to be allowed to have a trial with God. Let me uh, bounce down here uh, to the next line. He quotes Job 40.15, which we've studied. Behold, behemoth, which I, ma- which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. But what is this great mysterious creature, behemoth? The identification of behemoth is a widely disputed is widely disputed amongst biblical scholars, as can be seen by their varied interpretation. Is it a real earthly creature, meaning hippopotamus, elephant? Uh, was it a mythical creature? And we've gone over that. Don't believe it was mythical. Uh, otherwise, Job would have. Uh, not had a, an understanding of what this was unless it, unless it came from the Canaanite gods that they worshipped. Or could it be an earthly creature who also represents maybe just a spiritual force? There's another option that is not argued by commentators, namely that behemoth was a real creature that is now extinct. In order to correctly identify the creature known as behemoth, it is necessary not only to pay close attention to all the details in the text about him, but to keep in mind our presuppositions about the history of the world as this will impact our interpretation. And of course, presuppositions means that there are scientists who believe in biblical principles, uh, the biblical story, of creation, and there, of course, 
many secular scientists who do not. Behemoth, real or mythical? In Job 40.15, God tells Job to behold, to see, to observe, to take notice of this creature. The Hebrew word, behemoth, is the plural form, and it's used here to describe, used in some places to describe beasts, can even be livestock of the earth that God created on day six of creation week. So um, behemoth, uh, and we could go to uh, Genesis one twenty four, and we'd see behemoth there translated as cattle. Uh, so it can be livestock. But we have to always consider the context where we find the word. Scholars recognize that the word uh, implies a super beast because of the description uh, in this text. What is clear from verse 15 is that Behemoth and Job have one thing in common. They're both creatures of God because God said he made them. The words which I made as I made you work against the view that Behemoth is a mythical creature. A real earthly creature is clearly in view and that, I believe, is established also by verse 15. In his first speech, God uses real animals and birds, lion, mountain goats, donkey, wild ox, ostrich, horse, locust, hawk, eagle. And that comes to an important, and it brings us to an important conclusion regarding creation and man's place in it. Uh, That was what God was trying to describe. uh, Similarly, in his second speech, God uses another real creature, and that is behemoth. And he uses behemoth in order to intensify the power of his his message to Job. Uh, God even draws Job's attention to the fact that behemoth eats grass like an ox eats grass very similarly to cattle. Uh, this could hardly be said of, of a, myth, uh, a mythical creature. Furthermore, the mythical beasts of other ancient Near East, uh, 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 other Near East accounts, were terrible and predatory in nature. But in contrast, Behemoth is described as a herbivore. Uh, and he lays down uh, peacefully under the uh, the plants of trees, and that's what we see in Job forty fifteen through twenty four. Behemoth's body. The description of Behemoth's body in verses sixteen through eighteen is lengthy and detailed, and is significant in helping to identify this massive creature. This massive and powerful description of behemoth behemoth has led many commentators to rightly acknowledge that he must be a real earthly creature. However, for commentators who reject the mythical interpretation of behemoth, the unanimous accepted position seems to be the hippopotamus. However, the description does not fit the hippopotamus. 
And I think one of the reasons for that is they just need to find a animal that is currently in existence. And the close they can come is a hippopotamus. Um, the description in verse 17 of Behemoth's tail is important for understanding this creature. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. He bends his tail like a cedar. His tail sways like a cedar. He moves his tail like a cedar. Those were the English translations uh, that I found. ESV, the New American Standard Bible, uh, the New International Version, and the New King James Version, the ESV being the English Standing Version. In verse 17, God compares a behemoth's tail to a cedar tree. Cedar trees were of great size and, of, and a symbol of power in the Old Testament. The average height of a cedar tree is around 30 to 40 meters, while the average size of an adult male hippopotamus's tail is around 56 centimeters. So this is not going to be a hippopotamus. Finally, the prominence of behemoth is described in verses 19 through 20, and again provides evidence that this is a real earthly creature. The fact that behemoth is the first or the beginning amongst the the works of God tells us that he is a creature made by God to be the mightiest of animals. In his second speech, God is getting Job to consider his relationship to behemoth. Only God can approach and master the great beast that is behemoth as he is Lord of both creation and creatures. Unlike Job, or unlike uh, unlike God, Job does not have the power to control a world uh, full of powerful creatures. So what then is behemoth? If behemoth is not a mythical monster and not a real earthly creature such as the hippopotamus or an elephant, then what could he be? Biblical creationists have long argued that behemoth is a creature that is now extinct, but at the time known to Job when he was alive, possibly a sauropod dinosaur. Why then do most, if not all, evangelical scholars who have written commentaries on Job not understand behemoth in this way? The reason is quite simple. The vast majority of these commentators on the book of Job have been influenced by long ages of evolutionary geology. And so in their minds, the creatures that we now know as dinosaurs never lived together with man at the same time. But they died 66 million years ago and now are only found in fossil, in a fossil record. Commentators are not even thinking about the possibility of interpreting behemoth as an extinct animal, such as a dinosaur. So uh, what we find is that uh, the teaching of evolution uh, has been accepted by many uh, biblical scholars. They simply uh, understand the creation week as being 
millions of years. In his recent commentary on Job, influential uh, apologist and scholar, Dr. Michael Brown, believes that Behemoth is an earthly creature that also represents a spiritual power. Brown acknowledges the interpretation by creationists of Behemoth as a dinosaur, but says it is generally dismissed out of hand by anyone who is not in that camp. However, the reason Brown struggles with Behemoth being a dinosaur is because of his belief in an old earth. So if you have an old earth, then you have millions of years prior to mankind to have dinosaurs uh, appear and then uh, disappear. Brown's argument uh, is problematic for several reasons. First, the the biblical account of creation tells us that man was created alongside the land animals, meaning dinosaurs. And this author believes it's on day six, which would be fine. The global flood in Genesis 6 through 8 would account for most of the fossil record, which includes dinosaurs. Then after the flood, two of every kind of land animals, including dinosaurs, came off the ark and lived alongside man until they either died or were hunted out of existence. Uh, There is plenty of evidence from all around the world that people in ancient, ancient cultures in their art and pottery, knew what scientists know today and would call dinosaurs. The discovery of red blood cells and blood vessels in a dinosaur femur and soft tissue in a dinosaur bone also strongly suggests that dinosaurs did not go extinct 66 uh, 66 million years ago. Given that dinosaurs were rediscovered uh, by scientists in the 19th century and the word dinosaur not invented until 1841, we should not expect the author of Job to have used the word dinosaur. Let me jump down here to our last, uh, last point. Finally, the claim. That all virtually all scientists believe dinosaurs went extinct millions of years ago implicates uh, implicates problems with other important Christian doctrines and biblical miracles. For example, most scientists do not believe in the virgin birth, the resurrection, or the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament. Yet, would Dr. Brown abandon his belief in these vital doctrines? until scientists were persuaded by the truth, by scientific testing and evidence. In other words, uh, Dr. Brown here uh, claims to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and believes in the inspired uh, text of Scripture, but he simply believes, does not believe in the six literal days of creation. The description of Behemoth, in Job 40, is clearly not a mythical monster. And no other living creature uh, alive today fits its description. It must be an an extinct creature. The only reason not to see Behemoth as a dinosaur 
as if you have already accepted an evolutionary time frame of the world that is contradicted by history, by science, geography, or geology, and most importantly, the Word of God. All right. Uh, the reason I wanted to read that is that there, and that's only one uh, scientist who works for uh, Answers in Genesis or the Institute for Creation Research and many other uh, Christian organizations that believe in a young earth and six days of creation. Uh, if that's the case, then there's no reason for us to believe, uh, there's no reason for us to uh, believe that uh, these dinosaurs had to have died 66 million years ago. Uh, if we follow the literal text of Scripture, and if we, I think, look clearly at the description of behemoth here, uh, it could very likely be dinosaurs. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this text of Scripture. We're thankful that God uses this to help us to understand not only creation, but the lessons that he's trying to teach Job. Yes, dinosaurs exited the, uh, the ark, and it's highly likely that many generations subsequent to that lived alongside uh, dinosaurs. But over a period of time, uh, God has removed those animals, particularly the land-bound animals, although there are periodically, uh, there may be something in the sea that seems to be rather odd to us today. So, Father, help us to uh, continue to understand the word of God. Help us to understand the lesson that you're trying to teach Job, which was you are the creator and you are in charge of all of the events in our lives, whether it be uh, adversity or whether it be a blessing. And we do ask, Father, for blessings on those that we mentioned in our first, um, uh, in our opening prayer. We ask for their health. Uh, we ask, Father, for their recovery, and we look forward to hearing all the wonderful things that you are doing, that you have done for them with regard to their surgery and all their, also their recovery. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.